Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Madeline Levine. Dr. Levine is a renowned psychologist and New York Times bestselling author of The Price of Privilege and Teach Your Children Well. In Ready or Not, she takes a hard look at current parenting practices. We know what the research says about raising children, so why do we keep falling into the same traps of applying extreme academic pressure and emotionally coddling our children? We spoke with Dr. Levine about this question, as well as some key takeaways from the book for parents and educators. So joining us on the phone right now, we have Madeline Levine, the author of Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain World. And Madeline, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. So I want to start off talking a little bit about um, your previous books, The Price of Privilege and Teach Your Children Well. Um, When you were writing this book, how would you say you built off of those two books? So (laughs) really, I built off the fact that those books were very successful Um, gave me lots of opportunities to speak with people all over the country, as did many of my colleagues, and yet it didn't really move the cultural needle. And I think what I decided was while people stopped, like, confronting me and I would face an audience and everybody would shake their head yes around your kid needs more sleep and less academic pressure, you know, there was consensus that that was good advice, and yet people were finding it incredibly hard to affect those kinds of changes in their homes. And that, and I just got interested in that. I mean, I'm a mom, I raised three kids, and usually when you say to somebody, this is not good for your child, um, we listen, right? Because that's what we're interested in is the things that are good and helpful for child development. and. I got very interested in why it was so hard to affect the changes that were um, being talked about, but not just being talked about, being researched. Uh, So that was what made me write this book. This book's a little different in that it's an attempt to look at, I'm not trying to make the point anymore that if you're micromanaging everything about your kid, um, that's really not a good thing, that you end up with a kid with what I'm calling accumulated disability if you're constantly accommodating to anxiety. I really wanted to figure out what made it so hard to affect those changes um, in spite of the fact that people believed they would have been beneficial to their children. So that's what this book was about. And it meant that I didn't use psychologists and educators as much as I use business people and military leaders and people who had experience with periods of transition and pressure and anxiety and fast change to see if they had other things to offer than than my usual suspects. And so you do, um, you do an excellent job in the book of presenting all of this, um, but as you, as you mentioned, um, a lot of the things you're talking about are basic things that, you know, parents know there's already sort of a consensus that, you know, children should get sleep, you know, not to pressure them too hard in those academic settings, things like that. Um, but 
So why, as you call it, that cultural needle, why, why do you think that isn't moving? I fear. <laughs> um, you know, I gave a talk yesterday. I have one slide, and the word, it's just the word fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think the bifurcation in the economy, uh, the income inequality drives a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it looks as if there's just winners or losers, and nobody wants their kid to be a loser. So our fear is greatly increased by that. We're lacking community, um, less people are going to church, less people are going to synagogue, less people are active in community organizations, you know, which Putnam talked about years ago in Bowling Alone, but it's just increased. So we're kind of hunkered down into our families as, as a unit of, um, you know, where we get our solace and where we put all of our energy. and. I think parents are always well-intentioned, but I think they're very fearful that their kids are going to lose out. And, you know, my books always look like they're about kids, but they're really just as much about adults. So, for example, it's one out of three kids have an anxiety disorder, according to the World Health Organization, but so do one out of three of their parents. I think we're living in, you know, an obvious, and anxiety has a big genetic component, 30 to 40%, but obviously our genetics haven't changed in the last 15 years when these things doubled. Um, so I think you have to look at the environment. What in the environment is preventing people from being thoughtful and taking this kind of change? And I think people are just too afraid that their kids are going to lose out and the world feels incredibly uncertain. Uh, nobody has a clue. If you're a young child now, nobody has a clue what kind of work they're going to do. Um, there's consensus on what skills will serve them well, but not on the work that they'll have. And so I think what people will say to me is, I can't afford my child to be an experiment right now. Mm-hmm. Not, it's not really an experiment. I mean, we know child development is one of the oldest fields in psychology. We've got good information on it. Um, but you hear over and over again the, the unfortunately incorrect assumption that once kids get someplace, then they'll be fine. So in the book, you know, I have that story about a kid whose father is graphing all of his calculus Test scores, mm, yes. mm. and the kid, the kid has trichotillomania, and he's pulling out his eyelashes and his eyebrows and his hair, and the father says, um, you know, he'll stop that after he passes calculus. And no, he won't, because <laughs> what's missing from that is the fact that that's how he's learned to manage anxiety. And once you've learned a coping skill, it's not so easy to change it. So that w- is likely to be the coping skill he continues to use. And, and and I think what's happening is because we're not allowing children to have those small experiences of normal developmental anxiety. Mm-hmm. I, I, gave a talk, I gave a talk last night. I had over 500 people. And I just for the heck of it, I asked the question, how many of you have never had your heart broken. And out of 500 and something people, one person raised their hand, one person. So the experience of having being heartbroken happens to everybody. Mm-hmm. And if, if you don't allow your kid, and it's tough. I mean, I had three kids. It's tough to see your kid unhappy. 
but you know it's kind of like inoculation against a really bad disease which is falling apart or you know suicide or something like that when you first have your heart broken if you have these small increments mm -hmm. but i think i think parents are not trusting because everything around us is so uncertain not trusting that things will be okay and they're you know like i've just said twice they're incredibly fearful about swimming what they call swimming upstream or the dad who says you know my kid can sleep after they get into stanford or you know it's just not it's it's incorrect and we we know better um and yet it's been yeah it's been really hard to move the needle i'm good friends with a guy named david kessler who uh, was the head of the FDA when all the stuff about cigarette smoking came out. Mm -hmm. And he did an amazing job of getting, you know, people to stop smoking. And whenever I'm kind of depressed about not making enough impact, and I talk to him, he says, Madeline, I changed a single behavior. You're trying to change a culture. And that helps me feel a little better because it's so many behaviors, you know. Um, but but I think it, it comes down to fear, and I and income inequality is definitely in there. Lack of community is definitely in there. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And look, look, what gets all the play, even in the media is, you know, can you get into Harvard or can you not get into Harvard? And mm -hmm. then every once in a while it'll be maybe Williams. You know, most kids don't go to those schools. It gives the parents the impression that that these are the alternatives. Um, I had a funny experience, if I have time to, have time to tell an anecdote. Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> I went to the State University of New York at Buffalo, mm. and um, my co-founder at Stanford at Challenge Success went to Harvard and Stanford. <clears throat> and so we often speak together and make it, I make it known where I went to school compared to where she went to school. And this past week I was at a book signing at my local bookstore, um, and the person that was there was a man named Robert Haas who has been the Poet Laureate of the United States twice. Well, he was my teacher at Buffalo. Mm. And, you know, it, nobody's running to send their children to the State University of Buffalo, but it was the best <laughs> education I possibly could have had. So there's just a profound misunderstanding coupled with materialistic values about what good education is and what it takes to succeed. Mm. Definitely. I think a challenge that parents and teachers find is that, um, so you talk about these soft skills in the book, such as curiosity, adaptability, these sort of things that will you know, help children no matter how the world sort of takes shape when they mature. But the difficult thing about those is that it's sort of hard to quantify those. You can't exactly measure or grade them in the same way that, say, you can measure like, you know, the father graphing the calculus grades. Like, that's an easily quantifiable thing. So how... Can parents and teachers sort of, um, I guess, feel comfortable that their children are hitting those, hitting those benchmarks, I guess, in terms of those skills? Or does measuring them defeat the purpose of developing them at all? Um, so, you know, we're highly dependent on metrics, right, mm -hmm. to a point that I think is um, unhealthy because not everything that's valuable can be measured. Mm -hmm. However, 
just, um, I, I suppose it's a little correction. You can, businesses have all kinds of um, assessments around curiosity, for example, and creativity. So th there are ways to come up with a number on that, um, mm -hmm. which was interesting. I never knew that there was an assessment for those things, but there are. So you probably can assess them to some degree. Um, you know, if I mean, I raised three boys. Mm -hmm. One of my kids uh, only wanted the right answer, period. I used, to, I used to do this experiment where I'd say, tell me what a monarch is. And my firstborn kid, who was you know, a right answer kid, would go, go to the encyclopedia in the, those days, um, come back within minutes uh, telling me what a monarch butterfly was. Mm -hmm. My middle kid, who is in the arts and is in New York and directing and writing, he would come back an hour later because he went from monarch butterflies to monarchy in England to the fall of monarchy, you know. <laughs> so, so kids have different um, levels of all those skills, right? Some kids are curious and all over the place, and some kids are quiet and observing. So was I ever going to change my kids entirely? No, not no, but... I think what happens is my older kid, this is becoming personal, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. My older kid was greatly reinforced for his, quote, right answer, right? Mm -hmm. So his teachers loved that, and he got a lot of positive reinforcement for just coming back with the right answer. My middle kid got less reinforcement for wandering around and trying to figure things out, and that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I think that if parents can switch their attitude, there, there are two words that I always use with parents, and that is curiosity and listening. I think, I think we don't listen enough to kids. No kid has ever, I'm a psychologist for 35 years, no kid has ever come into my office saying, uh, my parents listen too much. Right? <laughs> they come in and say, my parents talk too much. Mm -hmm. And listening, listening's an art, you know, listening without, like, spending your time trying to figure out what your answer is going to be, what your response mm -hmm. is going to be. That's not really listening. So I think parents need to listen, and I think they need to cultivate curiosity um, by not being so impressed just with the right answer, but kind of the right way of thinking about things, which is to be really curious about them. And, you know, every CEO I spoke to, and there were many, uh, mm. talked about these skills as being mandatory. Um, so I think that up until maybe the last five, 10 years, you know, I'm a psychologist, I got good grades, I went to school, my husband's a surgeon, he got good grades, he went to school. But that is, that's not the paradigm anymore. People, people will have multiple careers, multiple jobs. Um, they're going to have to learn over and over again uh, new skills in whatever they're doing. And this idea that all you need is content is just not true anymore. Um, my, cousin, my husband's cousin, who's head of neuroimaging at NIDA, I asked him, you know, is there a difference that he hires scientists? Is there a difference in the scientists you're hiring now and you did 15 years ago? And he says, absolutely, content has gone to the bottom of the list. 
doesn't mean that content doesn't matter. Of course content matters. But you can get content with the flip of a finger. What you do with that content is what's going to matter going forward. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the um, emotional growth side of things since we've been touching on the more the academics, the grades, that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. another, another challenge I think that parents specifically have more so than teachers is trying to find a balance between... Um, you say a big issue with children right now is they're emotionally coddled too much, um, but okay. this is a huge departure from you know decades past where children's concerns weren't taken seriously at all. So how yeah. how can parents find a balance between those two? When children were seen, not heard, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it, I think it's complicated. Mm-hmm. I think that. Parenting as a full-time job with the goal of cultivating every possible uh, quality in your children has become exhausting. It's Mm -hmm. exhausting for children and it's exhausting for parents. Um, And I think what's lost in that process is uh, the kinds of experiences that kids need to develop a sense of self. I mean, that's my real, you know, I started because I was interested in identity. That was what the price of privilege was about. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's just getting worse because if you if you aren't allowed the experiences of navigating anxiety, which I think kids are not, parents are very quick to confront the coach or the teacher or the other parent or the kid and not allowing the kid to have the opportunity to speak, to be sad. I can't tell you how many parents have said to me, I can't stand to see my child unhappy. Mm-hmm. And my answer is always the same. You're in the wrong profession. You can't, you have to be able to tolerate seeing your child unhappy because your child needs the opportunity to learn that they can navigate through challenge, disappointment, sad, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And when we don't allow that to happen, this is this whole exploding area of emerging adulthood. Um, there was never, uh, this past year I sent six kids to emerging adulthood programs that cost a fortune. Um, and wh- why? Because they never had the opportunity to learn how to manage their college roommate. So it's like, I can't manage my roommate, I'm drinking too much, and I have to come home. And I, I see that as the end result of constant intervention so that kids don't develop the skills, don't feel good about themselves, and then they have to go off to a treatment center to learn how to adult. You know, mm-hmm. the New York Times has a column on adulting. <laughs> I mean, as a verb. You didn't, right? You didn't need, you didn't, I was, I was recently down in Silicon Valley talking to a bunch of CEOs, and one of the questions was, does my child need to learn how to make a bed? And it was just a <laughs> jaw-dropping question. Um, and the, you know, the reason why, I said, why would you even ask that? And he said, well, you know, I don't make my own bed. The housekeeper makes the bed. And it's kind of like, you're, you know your kid's going to grow up, right? <laughs> and you know they're going to leave your house and they're going to get to college or they'll have a girlfriend, whatever. And the girlfriend will say, like, what the hell is the matter with you? Why can't you make the bed? <laughs> they need, of course, they need to learn how to make the bed. So I think, I think we're cutting into kids' confidence. I think we've gone way overboard on 
the side of constant cultivation. And, and as a result of that, then adults' own lives are attenuated. We don't have enough, there's 24 hours in the day. We don't have enough time to cultivate our own interests, to be part of a community, um, and I think that's a real loss for us and, and for our children as well. Mm -hmm. uh, another interesting thing that, um, that I was thinking of as I read through the book, um, you mentioned that because, sort of because of this emotional coddling, children aren't as rebellious in their teenage years as they've been. You talk about yeah. that being you know, good and natural for the emotional growth of our children. Um, but right. as a parent, it's it's interesting because how how do you raise a child and want that child to rebel for their growth, but at the same time be that authority figure? Do you, you know what I mean? It's interesting. Well, I mean, think back to think back to I don't know how old you are. But <laughs> <laughs> you, you sound younger than older. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, think back in your in your own life. Do you remember? If I say to you, tell me something really cool about your adolescence, what would you come up with? Hmm, you know, that's a good question. You know, I'm not normally the one who's asked the questions on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. Hmm. Something really cool about my adolescence. Oh. I mean, I enjoyed doing theater when I was in high school. That was a big thing, I think, which I feel like is not a very rebellious or fun answer, but... <laughs> Yeah, well, okay. Let's see. So, so I did. I did theater. try to drive um, my dad's truck through a snowbank once. That did not go well after a rehearsal one day. Uh huh. <laughs> and, and and what happened? Um. Let's see. What happened? We tried to get it out. We couldn't. Eventually, the janitorial staff had to come help, and then our friend called his dad, and he had to tie a rope between his truck and our truck, and. Some of us had to push while one person drove, and he drove the other truck, and it was a whole, whole crazy, silly thing. But that's no, but it's not silly. It's <laughs> all the things that were learned in the process of that. Mm -hmm. When you don't drive into snowbanks, two, if you do, you need help to get out of them. Um, three, you know, there's a physics lesson somewhere in there about how to actually get out of a situation. I mean, you learned a whole bunch of things, and. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, in not allowing kids to have, now I'm not talking about dangerous things. You don't mm -hmm. want your kids jumping off things or really endangering themselves. So part of being a parent is teaching children to assess the difference in risk between um, trying out to believe in the theater production, which mm. is a risky thing, right? Mm. And and driving drunk, which is a risky thing that's very dangerous. And the only way to learn those things is to allow your child to have some experiences of risk. And I think that to the extent to which kids are have internalized this parental fear of being in the world, um, you know, with with some good reason. I, we have mass shootings. We have uh, uh, active shooter drills for six-year-olds. I mean, there are parts of the world that are incredibly scary, but there's still a small part of the world, and part of adolescence is that period in which you're free to explore who you are, what you want to be, what your values are, what you can manage, what you can't manage, and and the reason that's so important is it leads, you know, you're very tight in your family, then you rebel against it, 
And out of that, you come to what we call autonomy, which means you can be both part of your family and part of your own life. And I think that that's just getting pushed out. And I think parents should have some fun, uh, which I understand can be hard. I raised three boys Mm -hmm. with with the fact that teenagers want to fight with you. I mean, what do they do? What is a teenager doing when they're fighting with you? They're using their newly acquired habit and capacity to think abstractly. And mm-hmm. so if you think of it that way, I think about my kids arguing about, you know, marijuana is the greatest thing in the world or putting earrings in their noses. I, you know, I, the things that they did, mm-hmm. if you see that through the lens of health, as opposed to pathology, you can have some fun with it. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, I will say for the record, and I don't know whether this makes the story better or worse, but I was 100% sober when I tried to drive that truck into the snowbank. <laughs> I do that. You need that. <laughs> good, good. Just wanted to clarify. <laughs> uh, my mom does listen but, to these but, occasionally. But, so. you know, those, are, those are part of the experiences. My older boy was suspended for school the first dance of high school him and a bunch of his friends were so terrified of having to deal with girls right first dance Mm -hmm. that they're caught in the bushes six of them with one one can of beer (laughs) they're they're all suspended right and i get the call from school your son is suspended he was and uh, i'm standing there i'm crying i'm in tears and my husband is like great and I'm, what do you mean great? And he said, this is the best thing that can happen to him because now he will not be allowed to drink for, internally himself mm-hmm. up to the rest of high school because it went on his record, you know, and then you have to be not tr- be caught drinking again in order to graduate. So my husband thought it was the coolest thing <laughs> possible that it 14, he was caught with a can of beer. I, <laughs> I, I didn't experience it quite that way, but it was a really good thing. So that's what I mean by having some fun with, you know, he, my husband had a lot, he, he got up on the bed and started jumping around, um, <laughs> which I found really hard to understand at the time, but I totally get it, you know, now. So, yeah. Uh, Madeline, I just want to ask you one more question um, before we end here. Um, And this is a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast. Since this is Uh primarily for teachers and their students, uh, who was Uh your favorite teacher? Uh, My favorite teacher was Mr. Stein. He was my seventh grade English teacher. And I wrote a piece um, way back then. This is middle school. Mm. And um, he said to me, you know, you really write pretty well, why don't you submit it? Mm-hmm. And it was very matter of fact, and you know, I didn't have writing coaches or tutors or anything, but he gave me confidence, and I, I always feel like I owe him for, mm-hmm. for um, appreciating something about me. So, yeah, missed a sign. That's great. Uh, well, we at Harper Collins are very happy that you kept up with the writing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, here's an even better story. I didn't for many years. And um, when I was in Buffalo and had Robert Haas, who was mm-hmm. the um, poet laureate of the United States twice, mm-hmm. as my English teacher, um, recently I, he had a book signing uh, out here at Book Passage where we all sort of launch our books. And I went and I saw him. And um, he remembered me, I remembered him, 
And I said, oh, it's really funny. My book launches in two weeks here. And he looked at me and he said, Madeline, what took you so long? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Meaning, like, why weren't you writing all along? Well, I was raising kids and being a psychologist, but... Mm. You know, and State University of New York at Buffalo, by the way, nobody's beating down their doors to get their kids at the State University of New York at Buffalo, at least not out here. (laughs) Best education I could have had. That's great. Uh, Well, Madeline, thank you so much for chatting with us. It's been really great. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.